Welcome to Keith Knight, Don't Try to On Anyone and the Libertarian Institute. Today, I am joined by Lawrence W. Reed of lawrencewreed.com. He is the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education, one of my favorite organizations. Mr. Reed, thank you so much for your time. Hey, it's my pleasure, Keith. Thanks again for having me. Of course. What are historical narratives and why are they important? Well, historical narratives, let's say in contrast to a straight documentary, uh, tells a story that has a genuinely uh, uh, true background to it, at least. But often uh, the characters are imagined or the specific situations are created. And then you uh, write it, uh, you know, as if it happened. Um, that's, it's not uh, something, it's not the style in which I personally write. I tend to write uh, uh, nonfiction, period. But um, historical narratives traditionally blend both fiction and nonfiction. So why are those uh, so important? It seems like, um, well, the, the past is the past. Uh, regardless of whatever happened, let's just focus on the future. Well, I think they tend to be very entertaining. And as long as people go into them knowing that, uh, you know, they, they are not uh, word for word documentaries, that they do involve imaginary situations and characters, but with a uh, genuinely uh, accurate uh, backdrop, uh, I think they, they can tell stories, they can make points, they can advance principles uh, with a background that people can relate to because they know something about history. Karl Marx would generally say things like uh, there, uh, th the narrative of history, it's uh, we had slavery and then feudalism and then capitalism. Therefore, the logical uh, move in this uh, good direction would later be dictatorship of the proletariat and then communism, abolition of private property. If you want to give people sort of a narrative uh, to, to live by who uh, advocate uh, the libertarianism or conservatism, something in this uh, small government uh, voluntary realm, would you uh, more or less uh, c create a story? Would you have sort of pillars like Marx did where we're sort of moving in this direction? How would you give uh, someone a uh, kind of story to be a part of? Well, uh, to begin with, I would not use the uh, style that Karl Marx used because uh, that was more like uh, prophecy. Uh, by someone who was not a prophet. Uh, he had no idea what the future held. And to suggest that history is governed by certain predetermined stages and at some distant point in the future, one stage will give rise to the next really was just pure supposition. There's no uh, fact factual uh, uh, case or logic to it. It's just Karl Marx deciding he wanted to... Uh, uh, fit his ideological narrative into future history that hadn't happened yet. And of course, we know how inaccurate he was, not only in his prophecies for the future, but in the way he understood economics and, and human nature. So I wouldn't use his approach at all. Uh, my personal approach is, uh, I mean, I'm very much of a nonfiction uh, writer, but I see the value in uh, uh, things like novels, or a historical narrative that is uh, partially novelized 
because, um, again, people can relate to the background uh, in which the situations and characters develop because they are somewhat aware of it. It's not a totally new, it's not like writing something about uh, life on some planet we haven't yet discovered. I mean, in which case, everything's made up. <laughs> when it comes to the beginning of American history, the New York Times has sort of pinned the 19, the 1619 project as the beginning of American history, the new beginning. Why? Because this is when the first slaves were brought to America. When it comes to the history of slavery in America, where do mainstream historians get it wrong, if at all? Well, mainstream historians by and large, will part company with the 1619 narrative uh, from the New York Times. That, uh, that particular narrative is a classic example of somebody deciding, uh, here is my ideology. Now, how do I shape history <laughs> that already happened to fit my narrative? How can I pick and choose among things in the past so as to seemingly verify uh, the ideology or the narrative I have predetermined? Uh, I don't think that's either history or good storytelling. That's um, uh, a perversion of history. I think the best approach is to look at all things to the extent we can that happened and try to identify certain patterns or themes or character traits that seem to stand out as uh, determinative of events uh, of, of the day. If you do that, then the, the episode in 1619 is but one of many uh, instances in American history and hardly defining of what America was or became. I, I think you, you could pick, say, the uh, uh, Mayflower Compact, uh, which was in 1620, and say, well, that's the defining uh, instance or episode in American history that has so much to say about what came afterwards. The Mayflower Compact was between the uh, pilgrims and the other half of the crew, or the, or I should say the passenger list of the Mayflower in which they agreed voluntarily to a, to a representative form of government once they landed. Uh, that, that tells you more about really what happened uh, in America afterwards with all of its flaws, including slavery, uh, but those are flaws in most cases that uh, we have since conquered, and they are not flaws that are uh, or ever were peculiar to this country. America did more in many cases, in many ways, uh, uh, to end the slavery of the individual in one form or another than just about any other country in the history of the world. One of the things I noticed when I saw uh, started uh, studying history was while slavery and colonialism did exist in America's past, it's one of the probably if the uh, least unique thing about America or the yeah. West in general. If it's the least unique thing, I mean, th there's a tablet, the Code of Yernamu. I think it's like 2,000 years old. There, uh, nine of the 34 laws talk about slavery. Why is the least unique thing about American history? constantly being put at the center of the American discussion. Well, I think the people who do that, who make that error, who try to make slavery such a centerpiece and determining factor of just about everything else, I think um, uh, they first have decided what their personal agendas are, and then they are taking uh, certain events out of context and blowing them up into things far more determinative of our history than they ever were. Um, uh, yeah, if you look at uh, 
slavery. Uh, I mean, that's something that uh, has afflicted almost every corner of the globe, every, certainly every continent, but Antarctica has had at one time or another slavery. And um, at one time, uh, you could say that the great majority of people living were slaves or serfs, or at least had to live in constant fear of the people with political power. That was the order of the day for most of human history. America came along and uh, not by itself, but with a few other places uh, as well, within a hundred years or so, America came along and said, hey, it doesn't have to be that way. And uh, we're gonna start freeing people up. They, we didn't do it all in one fell swoop, but we created a system which allowed us uh, over time to perfect and improve the condition of human liberty. And although we still have work to do, we've uh, gone further in that direction than just about anybody else. I want to give you uh, a general summary of what I had learned at Arizona State University and uh, in high school. You tell me if uh, this is accurate, inaccurate, or what's missing. Okay. In the Industrial Revolution, you had the robber barons, Carnegie, Rockefeller, constantly the strong exploiting the weak. Finally, after all this suffering, Teddy Roosevelt stepped in with antitrust laws to protect the public from these exploiters. Antitrust laws are good because they protect the vulnerable from the strong. What, if anything, is wrong with that uh, concept? <laughs> Just about everything. I hardly know where to begin. I know that is uh, common mythology. Uh, and it's, it's simple. It is, uh, you, know, you just expressed it pretty fully in a matter of 30 seconds. And uh, it sounds plausible. But it's one of those things that when you dig a little deeper and you examine in particular the, the persons and the performance of certain companies that come under attack so often, you find very uh, frequently a, a very different story. Uh, you mentioned Rockefeller, uh, ex for example. Uh, he's the great boogeyman in American economic history, according to those who are hostile to freedom, free markets, uh, or, or capitalism. Uh, and the story goes, well, he was a monopolist. But you look a little closer and you discover that's, that's a myth. You know, monopolies are supposed to be uh, firms or companies or even governments that um, restrict output and raise the price and don't care much about the quality of the product and abuse the customer. You look at Rockefeller's Standard Oil and you find that the price of Standard's principal product, which was kerosene in the first half century of its existence, uh, it steadily fell, the price steadily fell dramatically from something like 40 cents a gallon to, to three cents a gallon. And the quality of the product steadily improved. And yes, Rockefeller got big, but he always had to deal with competition, not only domestic, but also very fierce foreign competition. But because he earned a lot of money along the way, which represented a mere fraction of the benefit that he provided to uh, the world's consumers, he's often held up as you know greedy, robber baron. But again, you look at the specifics and uh, the charge that he engaged in predatory price cutting, for instance, that he slashed the price in order to drive people from the marketplace, uh, competitors, and then uh, after they were gone, he raised the price again. There's no factual evidence for that. And that was proven by uh, uh, Professor John McGee. Uh, all you have to do is look at uh, the Journal of Law and Economics, October 1958, and you'll find a de the definitive study saying that never happened. Rockefeller would have been foolish even to try it. 
And yet that charge is repeated over and over again. Teddy Roosevelt, as you mentioned, is uh, portrayed as, wow, here's the guy who uh, saved us with antitrust law. The first antitrust law was in 1890 before Teddy appeared on the scene. So you can't credit him for that or blame him for that. Uh, it was called the Sherman Act, and it was one of the most nebulous uh, and ridiculous laws Congress has ever passed. It just simply said, uh, 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 you know, if, if you're a monopoly, then the government can come after you. I mean, to, to boil, it, uh, boil it down. The point is, it did not define what constitutes a monopoly. It didn't describe the, the behavior that somehow does harm to, to consumers and that they're short, therefore should be uh, adjudicated or uh, reprimanded. Uh, it was left a subsequent law to try to put some flesh in the bones. And now we know from a century of scholarship that uh, most antitrust has actually uh, harmed um, uh, consumers far more than it has benefited. Let's talk about a few other people from the robber baron era. When it comes to uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt, or Andrew Carnegie, Henry Ford. What do we need to know about these individuals to have an accurate understanding of what took place in the past? I think if you look at the, I mean, you can make suppositions till the cows come home, but uh, if you look at data, uh, that often tells a story very different from uh, what somebody's ideology would suggest. Uh, the fact is that the, the services these guys uh, provided, the products that they produced, all during the period that they were getting uh, big in the marketplace, uh, steadily improved. The price went down. Uh, competition was just as fierce when they were done with their work as when they began their work. Um, you had Cornelius Vanderbilt, for instance, engaged in a number of businesses. He was in railroads. He was in steamships. When he was in the steamship business, he had to compete with a government-subsidized steamship company. And uh, this is chronicled by the great historian and good friend of mine, Burton Folsom, in his book, uh, uh, the, uh, the Myth of the, of the Robber Barons. But uh, Vanderbilt kept saying to Congress, hey, why are you subsidizing this other guy uh, to build a steamship uh, line that to carry passengers across the Atlantic when I can do it without a subsidy or do it for half the subsidy. Uh, and he never took the subsidy, but he eventually beat the subsidized one simply because he was better. And I mean, you could say, well, isn't that evil? He did it for greedy purposes. Well, you know what? He's, he's not in the charity business. Who is? Uh, a few nonprofits, maybe, but the great majority of the goods and services that make us wealthy as a people are produced by for-profit, bottom-line, uh, accountable, and competitive private enterprises. Vanderbilt was no exception. So I think a person really has to shed, uh, if they have a bias against successful people, if they are envious of those who have more than they do, if they count other people's blessings instead of their own, yeah, then they're going to look at history with, in a jaundiced light, and they're going to find a lot of villains and victims. But history um, is rarely so uh, uh, simple as that uh, caricature would uh, suggest. 
when it comes to the idea of profit, it seems like people think they're making a big point when they were a profit seeker. And I said, yes, and these evil customers only come into my store because they want goods and services for their own self-interest, as if there's anything horrible with, the, yeah. with that. Uh, for, from an economic st standpoint, as the uh, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education, what is it that people need to have a general understanding of when it comes to the idea of profit? What uh, is the average person missing? Um, and that's a great question. And it's one that I dealt with uh, when I was teaching uh, Northwood University years ago, because I had some students who came in to class as freshmen thinking that, oh, profit, doesn't that mean greed? And, uh, you know, isn't that a bad thing? And so here's what I used to do. I used to say to students, okay, uh, imagine $100 worth of stuff, ingredients, factors of production, whatever you want to call them. And uh, some guy takes those $100 worth of uh, stuff and he plays with them, shapes them a certain way uh, and, and puts them in a certain place where he thinks people will want the end result. And lo and behold, people are willing to give him $150 for that $100 worth of stuff that he played around with and changed, transformed and put in the right place. OK, well, we might say, well, he made a profit. Uh, should we be horrified by that? No, we should say he added value. He took X amount and made it X plus. Would it have been virtuous if he had taken that $100 worth of stuff and turned it into something that people would only give him $50 for? I mean, any numbskull can do that. Uh, all you have to do is light a match to it and uh, somebody will give you less for it than, than what they would have before. But for, for you to consistently earn that profit by adding value is not an easy thing to do. And entrepreneurs will tell you time and time again, they didn't succeed at everything. They always had to take a risk. They failed at some things, but they learned from their mistakes. They bounced back. They persevered and they pleased customers along the way. So profit is... Um, a sort of a measure of service to others. If you earn it, it's because people are in effect saying by their purchases, what you did with that stuff is now worth more than if I had gone out myself and bought all the ingredients on my own. One final uh, thing on the Robert Barons before we move on. Uh, please remind me of the metrics that we could use to determine whether these people were parasitic or they uh, were producers to society. The, the one that, uh, that that came to mind was, uh, before we determine that, let's see if whatever they were producing, Carnegie Steel, was it going up in price over time? Certainly, evil greedy monopolist, we should see prices always rising in steel and the workers' wages constantly decreasing. What, what are some metrics we can use to really make sure we have an accurate understanding of what happened? Well, certainly the price of the product uh, is one metric. Uh, over time. And in the case of Carnegie, uh, the reason he made his money was he figured out how to make steel cheaper than anybody else. Uh, and anybody who had to purchase steel for the construction of this or that or whatnot, uh, greatly benefited uh, by uh, Carnegie's uh, uh, genius. That's one measure uh, or metric. Another one would be uh, to the extent you can measure the quality of the product. I mean, if uh, every time you go to the store and you buy Campbell's soup, but a tomato soup, but it has fewer tomatoes in it than the day before, you can say, well, maybe the price hasn't changed, but the quality of the product certainly has. Um, well, in the case of Carnegie, uh, not, only, not only did his steel become cheaper, it also became better and tougher and stronger. Uh, another metric would be return on investment, uh, because, you know, great entrepreneurs 
rarely start out with a bundle of money. Uh, they don't start with their billions. They often start in their garage and, and turn their genius, uh, along with the help of their workers and investors, into something of great value. Well, it's important to know what kind of return did they pay investors? Because investors are what? They're taking their savings and entrusting them uh, uh, to this gentleman or woman uh, to, to uh, uh, engage in business. And they deserve a return. In fact, no entrepreneur is going to attract capital if he or she never pays a return. So return on investment is, is, is another good measure. And there again, you, you want value creation and that's what you get in a free society. Those who don't create value, those who subtract from it will not attract investors and will not attract customers. And so before long, their mistakes are obvious and they're history uh, or they go to work for somebody else. So um, those are among uh, the metrics. Now, certainly you want to also look at uh, conduct. Uh, I, I mean, you can certainly make money if you cut corners and cheat people sometimes, but that uh, kind of tactic tends to be short term, catches up with you. And if government is doing its only legitimate job, it will certainly provide a, a, a legal channel for redress of grievances on the part of consumers or even competitors. But if you're an honest person and you're adding value to society and you're taking the risks needed to build an enterprise, you will be uh, rewarded in the marketplace. And that is the most important metric uh, of all. Of course, and we can clearly see this when it comes to the Fortune 500. Uh, if you compare it today to, I think, 1955, I think only 60 companies are still in there. There's this constant yeah. turnover. There's this constant innovation that has to take place, which, of course, uh, the voluntary sector seldom gets uh, gets the credit. It oh, that's right. And, and Keith, if I may add, uh, I don't want to suggest that everybody in business is on the up and up to the extent that uh, some business people use their political connections to get a special favor, to get legislators to give them a subsidy. You know, as a believer in freedom and free markets, uh, I mean, I, I am vociferously against that. I want a fair field and no favors. No, uh, I don't want the playing field biased by the intervention of politicians who try to pick winners and losers with other people's money. So uh, all that I've said applies to market entrepreneurs, not political entrepreneurs, and certainly not uh, market entrepreneurs who mix politics uh, in with their um, productive activity. And you use the perfect example of Edward Collins versus uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt, that w yeah. one of uh, my favorite stories. Yeah. When it comes to the Great Depression, general narrative, you had this unregulated capitalism. This gave us a Great Depression because Herbert Hoover basically sat back and just said, well, it'll take care of itself. Fortunately, the voters got some sense into them, elected FDR. He gave us the New Deal. That got us out of the Great Depression. What is wrong, if anything, with what I just said? Uh, that is certainly one of the most horrific and all too commonplace uh, incorrect historical uh, narratives. Uh, where to start? Um, again, that narrative, uh, I think, was uh, created and uh, propagated over the years because it fit somebody's ideology or a number of people's ideology. Uh, it, it fits neatly into the we hate capitalism uh, camp. 
we need bigger government to take charge of the economy camp. But when you, again, look at the actual facts, you'll find that government had its depression. It uh, first through the Federal Reserve System, which is a creation of the government. We're still paying a price for that monster today. Uh, they, uh, the Fed, expanded the nation's money and credit supply by, according to Mary Rothbard, uh, 65% or so from 1924 to 29. We know that period uh, uh, as the Roaring Twenties. We had good things happening. You had Calvin Coolidge cutting tax rates, and that was helpful, very positive. But at the same time, you had the Fed um, uh, spiking the punch, uh, creating a bubble, driving interest rates to record lows. Uh, this easy money flowing into the system, creating a boom that would have to sooner or later be corrected. And that began in 19, late 1929 with the bust in the stock market. It was a classic bubble caused by the Fed. And it was a bubble pricked by the Fed, which had begun to raise interest rates dramatically as early as uh, early 1929. Well, this, the Depression might have been only a recession and may have ended in a year, except there were uh, a series of crazy interventions thereafter that took a recession and made it a depression. In June of 1930, didn't have a depression yet, but President Herbert Hoover and the Congress, seeing uh, naggingly high unemployment, decided, hey, let's close the borders to trade. Uh, let's raise tariffs to an all-time high. The Smoot-Hawley Tariff uh, Act of June 1930, that, that shut down world trade. It led to retaliation by other governments against American goods. That, that took a recession, made it a, a depression. That's not a free market phenomenon. That's an act of government. 1932, in the midst of depression with uh, unemployment 20% or so, what did they do? They doubled the income tax. Imagine that in the midst of a depression, if you weren't already flattened by the Smoot-Hawley tariff, now you really got slammed. The, uh, the top rate was raised from 24% to 65% um, and all kinds of other taxes uh, were raised. Uh, that was very depressing. And then you had an election in which Franklin Roosevelt, the Democrat nominee, ran against the incumbent Herbert Hoover, the Republican. And Roosevelt said some things that I would have supported. He said, Herbert Hoover is the greatest taxing and spending president uh, in memory. And uh, we're going to balance the budget and cut government spending, get it off your back and out of your way. He, he was the laissez-faire candidate, if there was one, in 1932. Uh, so he, he wins election, uh, but then does just the opposite of everything that he promised. And that's why you get seven more years of depression, because Franklin Roosevelt, uh, being uh, basically an economic ignoramus, uh, his own close advisor, uh, uh, James Warburg, made that plain in his book, Hell Bent for Re-Election. Um, he starts jacking up uh, taxes, which he, he has assailed Hoover for doing. But before he's done, the top rate will go to 91 percent. Um, piles on the regulations, price controls uh, and so forth. In other words, uh, that narrative that the economy was laissez-faire, hands-off, minimal government is nonsense. The government caused the Great Depression, and then we lingered in it for a decade because of uh, a series of stupid interventions uh, thereafter. How does something like the Smoot-Hawley tariff, one might say, well, 
yes, it restricted uh, trade with foreigners, which is good because it creates jobs in America, and that's how you would grow the economy. Uh, how is it that uh, enacting tariffs would hurt uh, the domestic economy? The fundamental principle, uh, Keith, of trade is that you cannot close the door uh, to imports without closing the door to exports. In other words, if foreigners can't sell here because our tariffs on their goods are so, are so high, well, then how can they earn the dollars that they need to buy here? Uh, the cars don't come from Japan if they can't sell them here, and therefore the boat doesn't go back to Japan with American grain. That's why, for instance, uh, agriculture in America was particularly hard hit by Smoot-Hawley. It was one of our biggest export industries, about a third of what farmers were producing on American farms was destined for overseas markets. But now with Smoot-Hawley, foreigners can earn dollars. Other farmers are stuck with all this stuff and no markets to sell it in. And every business that depended upon the prosperity of the farmer, from rural banks to fertilizer companies, uh, they go into depression as well. So um, it, it's an easy, alluring temptation to think that you help your economy by uh, forcing people to not buy from a foreigner, but it immediately boomerangs. Uh, and even if the foreign government doesn't retaliate, which they usually do, it boomerangs anyway, simply because uh, you've made foreign goods too expensive to sell here. And then foreigners can't earn the dollars they need to buy from us. So we get a double dip recession in 1937, 1939. Henry Morgenthau comes out and says, look, I've been part of this administration. We've spent more than ever, and unemployment's as bad as it previously was. We've had all this time, and it hasn't given us what 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 we need. So historians have kind of seen this and said, okay, okay. We admit it wasn't necessarily the New Deal, but we had to try something. What really got us out was entering into the Second World War by conscripting 12 million men. Uh, the Second World War got us out of the Great Depression. What 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 do you say to that? Yeah, that's another very common uh, but also incorrect narrative. On the surface, it appears to be plausible uh, because unemployment dramatically fell uh, with American entry into World War II. Well, we took 11 million men and drafted them into the workforce, uh, the government workforce as soldiers. They... Um, uh, uh, they were taken out of the domestic workforce, so they didn't count anymore as unemployed. So, yeah, you, do, you take 11 million unemployed and, and it's, take them out of the equation, your unemployment number is going to look better. Uh, but if you look at uh, various measures of standards of living during the war years, at best, the American standard of living stagnated. Uh, and that's at best, because you can make a strong case that it actually declined. We had, uh, uh, we were, instead of making washing machines and automobiles for domestic consumption, we were making airplanes and tanks and guns. And arguably, we had to do that to win the war. But don't confuse that with, you know, an improving economy. Uh, we had to suffer through the war years with an economy at best that was stagnating. We didn't really see economic recovery until the war ended. Um, and there are two big factors that help explain uh, why the Depression finally came to, a, to an end um, in real terms as well as in those more artificial ways. 
1945, we had, and 46, we had the biggest reduction in government spending in American history, largely demobilization of uh, the military after World War II. You know, a Keynesian economist would say, uh-oh, government spending collapsed? Well, then we surely we're going to have another depression. And some people are, thought we would, but we had just the opposite because when government spending went down, what that meant was you had vast amounts of resources that now could flow into the far more efficient private sector. Now you could make those washing machines and automobiles instead of stuff that were going to blow up half a world away. That was one very beneficial thing, a reduction in government spending. Uh, but you also had uh, a new president, Harry Truman. And, uh, you know, I don't count him as one of our better ones, but he was a darn sight better than Franklin Roosevelt. Harry Truman was not this uh, New Deal, uh, you know, uh, run roughshod over capitalism and uh, uh, kind of guy. He got rid of a lot of the radical New Dealers. And he signed on, maybe reluctantly, but he did sign on to a dramatic reduction in the corporate income tax rate. It went in one fell swoop. The income tax uh, rate on corporate income went from 90% down to 38% immediately after World War II. Harry Truman signed that into law. Well, just ask yourself, if you're, if you're a business and on one day, uh, the government's gonna take as much as 90% of what you've earned, but the next day it says, no, we won't take any more than 38. Isn't that gonna affect your behavior? I mean, of course it will. I mean, it's a dramatically improved situation for things like risk taking and expansion of your businesses and the hiring of new workers. I mean, so uh, those are responsible for the recovery, not uh, the New Deal or the war spending that simply kept us uh, in a prolonged depression. When it comes to the well-being of I hate the term the workers as if entrepreneurs don't do any work yeah. as if people who don't get paid and do work around the house as if they're not valuable. It's ridiculous. But when it comes to helping the working class, people in entry level jobs up to working in their later years in life, what is it about the free market that uh, you support that makes it a place where the workers uh, would greatly benefit from? The free market means such things as uh, choice. It means that you have more than one option in so many aspects of life, whether it be as a consumer buying goods among competing providers who have every incentive to uh, treat you well and uh, or those who don't usually don't go very far uh, or to where you want to work or even whether or not you want to start a business yourself. A free market means that uh, a man or a woman who is a worker today employed by another person can become an employer tomorrow. I mean, that happens in a free economy all the time, every day. Uh, most successful entrepreneurs will tell you that they weren't always entrepreneurs from age three. You know, I mean, they worked for other people for a time, but they had some creative genius and some risk-taking willingness and they at one point decided they wanted to create an enterprise. A free market allows you to do that. And through the competition among employers and the competition among uh, creators of goods and services, every worker benefits. You get more stuff at lower prices of better quality, the more competition that you have. Is forming a union consistent with the principles of free markets? It depends on what the union is uh, going to do. Uh, in other words, once again, just as you would judge a company or should judge a company by its 
conduct and performance, you should judge unions on their conduct and performance. A union can perform a very beneficial uh, uh, responsibility or, or activity if it brings to the attention of the employer uh, issues in the workplace that, a, that individual workers may feel reluctant to bring. Uh, that's a positive contribution. Uh, if they enable the purchase of certain services by their workers in bulk at lower price, that's a way that uh, traditional unions or trade associations uh, have been beneficial. It's Where I draw the line is when a union says, now, uh, we want to uh, claim to represent every worker on this site, whether they choose to be a part of us or not. We, we need the uh, compulsion of government to come in here and tell people, if we get 50% plus one to join the union, everybody else has to join. Uh, even though you have the 49 plus percent that might say, wait a minute, it's not for me. I'd rather continue to bargain for myself. No, thanks. It's compulsory unionism that does a lot of harm. Uh, and it, immediately it insulates uh, to a considerable degree union leadership from the consequences of their own bad actions because workers can't say, no, thanks. Uh, I think I'll patronize another union or just handle things myself. Uh, I'm in favor of choice, competition, and accountability in every aspect of life. So when unions employ uh, political coercion, where they use the state to get special benefits that freeze out competition or compel workers to pay dues, whether they want to or not, that's, that's when uh, they no longer become a beneficial organization for the workers, but become uh, a, a threat every bit as much as uh, big taxing government. How is it that capital investment and competition benefit the workers? Well, without capital investment, uh, no worker would be making very much at all. I mean, uh, think of it. A capital investment can be thought of in two ways. It's number one, the funds necessary, typically from people's savings, to buy the tools of production to start a business. And capital investment also is, uh, uh, can be considered uh, those tools, you know, the, the, the machinery that enables you to dig the foundation for a home with a backhoe instead of a spoon. Um, if, you, if, if you're employed to dig a foundation for a home, but the, the, the uh, extent of the capital you have at your disposal is a spoon, uh, you're gonna have to, <laughs> work awfully hard and long before you ever get to completing the first foundation. Whereas with a backhoe, you can do it in a day or two. Um, your worth as a, as a worker is far greater when you have tools like backhoes to get the job done than, uh, than your worth when all you can produce is what you can do with a spoon. That, I think, is one of the most interesting things about the free market, how it's constantly harmonizing self-interest, saying how I can't get uh, any money out of your pocket unless you voluntarily give it to me. I'm not entitled to any of your time unless you choose to spend it with me and you have the right to withdraw it in the future. So even these things that appear to be self-interested, or even if they are self-interested, you still are benefiting People, Bezos with books is probably the best thing. It's so funny. I heard, um, I think it was Pat Buchanan talking about, you know, the the price of books 
were a higher number of dollars. So yeah. even forget about inflation when yeah. he was younger or when uh, his first books came out than they are today on Amazon. They've actually decreased in price in spite of the quantitative easing that uh, the, the federal government's given us. So the capital investment benefiting workers is just the perfect example of uh, of harmonizing interests. Again, exactly. as, as if politicians don't benefit. Yet Nancy Pelosi is actually a nun who works uh, for yeah, a monastery. Yeah. She's never profited. Chuck Schumer, he's he's homeless. He's just trying to help us. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, no. I, I, that's right. I, I've often wondered, uh, at what point does a politician's motivations cease to be self-focused or self-interested and some, suddenly become... Uh, other feeling and compassionate and, and only focused on others. Does that happen on election day or does it happen on the day <laughs> or the day they take office? Or, you know, when does that, what does that actually happen? <laughs> but, you know, Adam Smith expressed it so well 250 years ago when he said, if I can remember it verbatim, he said, it is not from the benevolence or goodwill. It's not from the benevolence of the butcher or the brewer or the baker that we get our daily sustenance, but rather uh, through their own regard for their own self-interest. I mean, isn't that true? I mean, you want to get somebody to uh, uh, give you something or do something for you? Uh, you? There are a couple ways to do it. One, you can take a club and beat the crap out of them. But, you know, whatever you get is going to likely be a one-time occurrence. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or you can say, hey, I got something for you. Uh, and let me say why it would be worth it to you to give me what you've got if I give you what I've got. I mean, it's one way or the other, folks. Either you can beat the crap out of people to get what you want, or you can harmonize your desires with theirs and find peaceful, cooperative ways to deal with them. Final topic on understanding of, uh, of history. Actually, two more. Uh, when it comes to Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, the big ones that come to mind being Medicare and Medicaid, this sort of was a transformation from either leaving people to their own devices or having unstable things as opposed to ushering in a social safety net, which we yeah. benefit from to this day. What, if anything, is wrong with the general understanding people have of Lyndon Johnson's Great Society programs? The Great Society, of course, encompassed uh, a number of things, not only expansion in, uh, in welfare payments and entitlements, but also uh, 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 increases or, or new ventures, I should say, into uh, medical care for the indigent and for uh, those of elderly um, age. One of the flaws in the whole thing was uh, the failure to look at the long term. Uh, a lot of these kinds of programs, when government first starts them up, uh, Social Security at, at first, of course, lots of people were, we took money from a lot of people and gave it to a very few people. Actuarially, that looked pretty good for a time. But all of these programs, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, they're on the road to bankruptcy. Uh, and each time it looked like that was uh, in the offing. Politicians would patch it up a little bit by raising taxes, uh, maybe in a few cases, uh, cutting benefits or at least uh, adding uh, years to the time when you could first begin to collect in the case of Social Security. Uh, but uh, right now, uh, the actuaries at those various institutions know full well, and there have been plenty of articles written about this, that in the next decade or so, 
Medicaid, Medicare, uh, Social Security are going to face calamitous financial problems. Uh, and that's when we may look back and decide, hmm, maybe it wasn't such a good idea in the first place. Uh, people who want to have a secure and free and prosperous future, not only for them, but for their grandkids, need to be thinking long term, not just short term. Otherwise, they'll go in for any any sucker scheme that seems to th throw something at you. But what you know, I, I often like to say this. I, I lecture a lot about Roman history. And I like to point out, if I could go back to ancient Rome, let's say very late in the Republic, as liberties were crumbling and before long, they were all lost and the empire was created. Uh, if I could go back and speak to the mob, uh, say 50 BC, I would like to say to them, hey, folks, you know, you've been on this welfare state bandwagon for 100 years. And a lot of you are feeling pretty good. It seems like you're getting more than you're paying in. So what's wrong with it? But let me tell you, I come from the future and I know where this is headed. Uh, it's going to bankrupt society and you will so weaken yourselves. You will become so dependent upon politicians. Future generations will care not a whit about uh, whether they earn their income uh, by theft from others through the political process or through their own efforts. Your society will so decay that in my day, we'll be reading about you in the history books as a civilization that committed suicide and felt they were having a lot of fun along the way. Is that what you want? And I'd like to think maybe some of the Romans would have said, hmm, maybe we should think long-term. Maybe, maybe we don't want to go down unsustainable paths. Uh, that's, that's one of the central problems of welfare states, the fact that they make a lot of people feel good for a time, but they set into motion forces which uh, destroy uh, society in the long run if they're not uh, turned back. Um, but I, I, I would also like to tell people, hey, you know, fundamentally, something that's rooted in wrong is not likely to end well. And when you advocate things like government forcible redistribution, robbing Peter to pay Paul, you're talking about theft. And even if you're on the receiving end and it makes you feel good, and if it makes you feel good that other people who seem to deserve it are getting something, uh, you're still justifying theft. Aren't there other means? Is that, is that as creative as you can get? I mean, a, a free society, we, we just throw our liberties to the politicians and in, in favor of the crumbs that they send our way and, and, and think that's the end of it. A free and creative people will come up with plenty of ways to solve problems. Sending your money to Washington, laundering it through a federal bureaucracy that, that then spits out a portion of it is the dumbest way to solve problems that I can think of. I was thinking of the high administrative costs that you get with something like this, because there's nothing anti-free market about pooling your resources together. In fact, today, because of free market innovations, it's easier than ever. We could yeah. have the uh, Ocasio-Cortez healthcare fund where everyone chips in and your name's on the list. So then when you need healthcare later in life, well, then you get money out of this thing. That's a yeah. that could be your single payer sort of system. But they're not interested in that. I love the idea of taking care of people when they're older. My only beef is not letting people opt out and the state yeah. monopolizing the money supply. But it, you, you get what I'm saying. That, yeah. Why has this been such a hard sell, considering it's not that we hate taking care of people. We hate this group's claim that they have the right to forcibly take care of yeah. people. Why has that been such a hard sell? Well, it, in so much of life, 
uh, the near term, here and now, forget the future, short term focused stuff uh, is an easier sell. Uh, I wish it wasn't, uh, but it's just the way things are. We, but we are given brains. Uh, human beings, each of us ha has a brain and, and the capacity to, th to think. And we should be thinking about these things far more deeply than you, what you can put on a bumper sticker. Uh, but people like AOC, that, you know, they can barely understand it if, if it'll fit on a bumper sticker. They just don't seem to care or even think through the long run consequences or the alternatives that might be viable. Um, uh, I think that's the shame of it all, but uh, uh, you just have to constantly ask people, hey, step up to the plate, be an adult. Uh, you know, as babies, uh, we're all socialists. Think of it, uh, when you were three years old, you're probably, you were a socialist, why? Because you didn't care what anything cost you want it, you want it now. You don't care where it came from or who paid for it. And you scream bloody murder if you didn't get it. But part of the process of growing up is realizing, wow, there are other people on this planet besides me. And they have rights just as I do. And uh, maybe I need to find another way to get what I want instead of just holding them up. And because if they get to, if, if I get to do that, what, what if they claim the right to do it to me? Um, you know, those are things we have to ponder when we become adults. But people like AOC remain babies. Uh, and when they get older, they simply and, and in, get into the political process. They simply become babies with guns. And, it, you know, I, I don't want to use, you know, the term like, well, th they live in a fantasy land. But if you say something like, X should be free, whatever you think X is. Mm -hmm. It's literally like saying the military is free because the government pays for it. Or yeah, we could exactly. make we could make houses free. We just give the Catholic Church a monopoly on taxation, and then the Catholic Church will buy everyone a house this way. It's free. Like yeah. you would clearly see through that scam immediately, even if yeah. money's not involved. Every piece of concrete allocated toward this group is not allocated toward other groups. So it's, it's literally like they're lying when they say uh, something is free. Uh, do you, have you found any uh, really good seeds to plant uh, in people when they think that there's, there's two ways of there's the free way. And then there's the people like Lawrence Reed who make me want to pay for things. And that's why I hate him. <laughs> well, uh, I get maybe a, a number of things you, know, you could say that hopefully a prod of them to, be more thoughtful people. I would say, well, if all this stuff was free, how do we get a $31 trillion national debt? Uh, and what is it about laundering your money through the political process that reduces the cost of something? Explain that to me, please. Don't, I'm not going to just assume that you're right about that. Please tell me, how does that work? Um, I would defy anybody to tell me how laundering your money through the political process makes things cheaper. Um, and, you know, other things like, well, in the long run, is it, is it better for a person to be as independent as his abilities allow him to, to be? Or would it be better if he were dependent upon people in uh, political power uh, for his livelihood? I mean, that's a pretty big decision, isn't it? I mean, uh, that has massive implications at the personal level as well as for society at large. And yet we sort of blithely assume, oh, what's the difference? And in fact, if we get it quicker and easier through the political process, well, why not do it that way? Um, 
short again, short-term thinkers who don't look at all consequences or the long run um, end up uh, like say, snake oil salesmen. They're pushing all this stuff. Say, look what look what I'm going to get for you. It's free. Um, it's just repeating age-old fallacies that have never ended well. And again, th- th- just like the earlier example with not looking at uh, the cost of things, they also don't do it when it comes to subsidies. So the biggest yeah. things that are subsidized, healthcare, housing, and higher education, have all constantly gone up in price. To forget college textbooks, uh, just mm-hmm. something ridiculous. They uh, d- doesn't uh, s- seem to care. Uh, well, we can leave it here because we, we've gone over. I'm so appreciative of your time. Uh, how does subsidizing something make it more expensive? Well, first of all, you got the cost of the subsidy. And secondly, the subsidy tends to uh, have an effect on the providers of that service, which is uh, they're less conscious of their costs. After all, they're being underwritten or their customers are being guaranteed in some way. Uh, their mistakes are being papered over. So why be careful about such things? It, it makes things naturally inefficient when uh, you're not having to focus on that bottom line uh, because you're not uh, you're not in danger of going broke if you don't. So um, just think in your personal life. Uh, wh- when is it uh, proper for an adult uh, to say to their children, that's enough? Uh, no, I'm not going to continually give you this. I mean, don't we do that all the time? Often parents give in and they, they, you know, do things that you could say is a kind of subsidy for their children. But I think most of us understand that there comes a point where that's not healthy. There comes a point where uh, you're going to set that child back if you continue to do that. That the best thing for that child is to say, stand on your own or don't expect uh, forever handouts. So we sort of know that when it comes to our personal lives, or at least most of us do, uh, why we think it should be any different when the government plays the role of national nanny uh, is uh, beyond me. Do you have time for one more question? Oh, yeah. Uh, Thank you. This is one of the big ones that we get, that when you have this free market, you are free to do bad things such as discriminate, and therefore we didn't see real achievements from uh, Black Americans until the Civil Rights Act. What, if anything, is wrong about that uh, th- that narrative? A number of things. One is uh, we did see improvement, especially after Jim Crow laws, uh, which are, again, laws of government, state and local, but still laws of government, not uh, uh, private actors uh, uh, in a competitive and free marketplace. Uh, we did see improvement uh, for decades in uh, the lot of um, previously oppressed peoples. As we freed the market, freed people, uh, they improved their standards of living. In fact, uh, time and again, no matter what you're measuring, whether it be uh, uh, you know, the uh, rate of, of, of intact families uh, versus broken families, or of uh, economic income, you'll find those numbers steadily fell uh, until about 1965, when we started uh, the Great Society with massive subsidies. And then progress stopped. When we started subsidizing uh, both good and bad behavior, uh, suddenly the uh, one measurement of uh, in improvement in standards of living of uh, various groups stagnated. They, uh, and that's what things like subsidies and political intervention do. The, there's nothing about being in politics that suddenly makes you 
uh, wiser than when you were in the private sector. There's nothing about politics that says you're, you're going to be more compassionate than uh, people in the private sector. Uh, but there is a lot about politics that says uh, uh, you're, you, know, you will do the things that tend to satisfy your self-interest and your accountability is quite limited as a politician. As long as you can uh, sell people the snake oil, uh, they'll keep drinking it uh, unless there's a huge awakening. Um, in, in a free market, you, you, can, you produce bad products. So you, you're going to be out of business a lot quicker than politicians go out of business, even when they produce disaster time and time again. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Reed, for your time. Thanks to everyone for watching the Libertarian Institute and Keith Knight. Don't tread on anyone. I want to end with one of my favorite quotes from Thomas Sowell, author of Civil Rights Rhetoric or Reality. But the number of blacks in professional, technical, and other high-level occupations more than doubled in the decade preceding the Civil Rights Act of 1964. In other occupations, gains by blacks were greater during the 1940s, where there was practically no civil rights legislation, than during the 1950s. In various skilled trades, the income of blacks relative to whites more than doubled. More evidence that the free market gives us what we need, and the state is constantly the parasite on society. Mr. Reed, thank you so much for your time, sir. A pleasure once again. Thank you, Keith.